0: Do me the favor. I know you've been on a yo-yo this morning, but I want you just to stand to your feet. Just sense in my spirit that before we enter into the message today, I I just want to make sure that God is is not finished in our worship. How many of you know that, that our worship, it's our gift to God? I told the first service this so many times. Preachers preach that you know worship prepares you for the message. That's not correct. Let me set that correct today. Worship does not prepare your hearts for the message, our message prepares your heart for worship because worship is our gift to God. The message that I preach to you is. God's not up in heaven saying, well, I just learned something new today. See, that's His word to you. But the Bible says that God will inhabit the praises of His people. It's through that inhabitation of of praise when it leaves our lips that something incredible happens something that is so glorious happens it's when the glory of God meets the syllables that roll off of our tongues and then God begins to do something that is so incredible that is so much bigger than you so much bigger than me you see we don't want to move from this place if God is still moving because God this is your day this is the day that you have made and today we're going to rejoice and be glad in it because God, you're a God of hope. You're a God of refuge. You're a God of peace. God, you're our everything. You're our all in all. You're the first, the last, the beginning, the end, the alpha, the omega. You are our everything, Lord. And today, we recognize and praise you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Today, some of you need to enter that place of worship where you are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Not worshiping God because of the problems in your life. And by all means, don't allow the problems in your life to rob you of worship. But we don't worship God for what He has done, nor what we need Him to do. We worship God for who He is. And when we get that right, God begins to come down in our midst. You see, God can take the broken pieces of our lives and turn it into a beautiful collage. Only God can do that. God can take the broken mess that is in your past and turn it around to work out good. Only God can do that. God can take the plans that you have made that have failed time and time and time again. And when He gets involved with it and our lives are turned over to Him totally, He can begin to do things on your behalf that you haven't been able to do for yourself. That's God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And it's through that connection with God that today some of you who are in this place You need an answer. You've come to this place full of questions, but God wants to fill your spirit with the answer. And the answer is Jesus Christ His love, His grace, His peace, His mercy. The answer is His promises. Today, let me say this to you. I don't, I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've gone through. I don't care the difficulties in your life, nor does God. God wants to establish and complete your present and your future. He wants to do something in you that will blow your mind. He wants to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that you think, ask, or imagine. So I'm challenging some of you today to begin to dream for God because God will do those things. Today, Father, today's about you. God, we desire to connect with you in an intimate way. We desire, Father, to to hang out with you, for you to take up residence in this place. Father, for you to fill our lives and may this word, God, be sharper than any two-edged sword. God, it has to be a word that changes us at the very core that, Lord, goes beyond today, that goes beyond tomorrow, that goes even beyond Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. But God, it has to be a word that changes how we operate in life. Because God, that's what you've called us to do. is to have our lives changed by you so that others may find you in the change of our lives. God, we just praise you. We adore you. We glorify your name. For it's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Hey, Why don't you high five like 10 people and say, strange way to save the world. Go, Go right ahead. Strange way to save the world. Go right ahead. I want you to take your Bibles out and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. I believe God has a powerful word for you today. Welcome to week number two of this series, Strange Way to Save the World. If you were here last week, God showed up in a powerful way, especially in this service. I told the first service not to try to get them to come to the second service because we don't need them to do that. But I said, God showed up in the second service last week. He just, 70 to 75 people just crowding these altars as we celebrated the gift of Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. Something that I've noticed, though, during this season called Christmas is that we tend to ask the question quite often, why me? Why this? Why this way? So many times we evaluate our lives and calibrate our lives by looking at the lives of others. And we see their successes and we see our failures. We see what they have and we see what we don't have. And we even make statements like this at Christmas time. We, we make statements like, I, I, I wish my Christmas tree was as pretty as hers. We make statements like, I wish I could celebrate the way he celebrates, but yet I really don't have anything to celebrate because this year it hasn't been successful, it's been just the opposite. Why me? Why this? Why this way? In fact, you know that Joseph had to have that thought when Mary came to Joseph and said, Joseph, I'm pregnant and the baby's not yours. Why me? Why this? Why this way? however if you were here last week we discovered that many of us were looking for a sign from god that will move our why me's into victories but you don't have to look any further because god has already given us the sign and the sign is for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government shall rest upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace emmanuel God with us. You see, Emmanuel, God with us, moves our why me questions to why not me. Because if God is with me, then I can overcome. If God is with me, then I can do this marriage. If God is with me, then I can do his purpose for my life. If God is with me, then I can have restoration. If God is with me, then I'll have direction. If God is with me, when all hell breaks out in my life, he'll still lead me and guide me through it's Emmanuel, God with us. that promise was not just given to Joseph 2,000 years ago. Joseph, I'm with you. God with you. It was a promise that was not only given to him, but it was given to all of humanity that God with us is here to save us. In fact, I want to pick up today where we left off last week. See, I, I noticed as a pastor during this season that there are feelings of discontentment brokenness inadequacies dreams that are shattered unfulfilled I, I-, I see that at this time of-, of year and it's almost as if Christmas is the dividing line where we begin to reflect back on our lives and we look at the past year and we see how life is and, but we also see how life should be and how we want life to be we, but, but yet we look back over the past year and maybe even years and we discover that life is not what it should be but then at Christmas we seem to discover the real meaning of life and it has nothing to do with the Christmas gifts or the Christmas tree or the lights or, or the lights But it has everything to do with the presence of the Holy Spirit drawing you to Him in order to complete your life. In fact, in the book of Matthew, Matthew paints this beautiful portrait for us around these dynamics. He exposes for us and calibrates for us the life and the birth of Christ. And he shows us that the birth of Christ was really the dividing line in fact let me let me do something with you we had some technical difficulties this morning but i want you to just hang here with me i think it'll work now christmas is the dividing line give me an amen if it's up there some of you said amen and it's not up there let's refresh and try again are you ready Christmas is the dividing line. Okay, praise the Lord. Let's refresh and try this again. We had a power outage this morning and we had to reset everything. Um, I'm going to this again one more time and you tell me. Christmas is the dividing line. Okay, give me the thumbs up when Christmas is the dividing line. But, but here's the deal, at this time of year, we tend to reflect on what's happened, what is and what should be. In fact, Matthew kind of describes for us that the birth of Christ was the dividing line. He establishes for us a very powerful piece of scripture that I, I, I want to share with you this morning. It begins in chapter 1 verse 1 and let me just say this probably one of the most powerful pieces of Scripture in all of the Bible he says this let me read it it says a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham everybody in your Bibles or your mobile devices highlight or circle a record of the genealogy a record of the genealogy now let me help you understand what that meant in the original Greek text a record of the genealogy meant this is the origin of. This is the history of. It was a terminology that was used to express that this is what was, but now something new is beginning to take shape. Something new is about to happen. There, this is the history, but, but now the future is about to change. Change is about to happen. Are you with me? That's what this term means, change is about to happen. In fact, why don't you just look at your neighbor and say, change is about to happen. What was the change? Let me show you something, the most powerful words in all of scripture were penned next. Look what it says in verse 2. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron; Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Are you with me? No, you're not. This is Ancestry.com here. Let's just be transparent. Why is this genealogy here? Because in all honesty, we don't really care about someone else's genealogy. We don't even like our own. Why is it here? Can can, can I ask you to be transparent? How many of you, when you get to the genealogies in Scripture, it doesn't matter whose it is, you just kind of skip over it as words that you can't pronounce? Most of us. We move on to the next chapter. But why is it here? Because there's a story behind the genealogy of Christ. In fact, just skip with me over to verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 says, Iliad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathon, Mathon the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. The husband of Mary. Whom was born Jesus. Who is called Christ. Hold on a second. Matthew is giving us the story of the birth of Christ through the line of Joseph. Through the genealogy of Joseph. Now, let me explain this because there's two dynamics that are happening in this genealogy that you need to be aware of. One of which I'm only going to talk about for a moment, but then the other I'm going to dive into. But understand this. Number one, when you see this genealogy in the book of Matthew, it doesn't come without controversy. If you know anything about scripture, you know that there's a genealogy for Jesus in the book of Matthew and there's a genealogy for Jesus in the book of Luke. If you were to take both of those genealogies and line them up beside of one another, they wouldn't necessarily look congruent. In fact, there are some differences. Some people have been confused by those differences since the birth of Christ. Let me explain the differences because this is incredible. Theologians and historians have proved that there is a very specific reason for it. You see, the book of Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph, whereas the book of Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus through Mary. See, let me explain the reason why there's a need to do this, because over in 2 Samuel chapter 7, hundreds of years before, God comes to David, and he says to David, David, your bloodline will sit on the throne forever. David did what he was supposed to do. He had kids. And he those kids gave birth to kids. But then later on down the line, David had a grandson. And that grandson was so wicked. The Bible says that God said from here on out, your bloodline will not sit on the throne. There was a blood curse. Now we have a problem. Why? Because God told David, David, your bloodline will be on the throne forever. But now his grandson has done some things that would keep him from sitting on the throne forever. What what are we going to do? And then we skip over to Luke and we see that Mary was a descendant of David. David had another son by the name of Nathan. Mary comes out of Nathan's line. What is so cool is that God is showing us that Jesus had a blood right to the throne through Mary. But he had a birthright to to the throne through Joseph because Joseph was out of Solomon's line and Mary was out of Nathan's line, both of which came out of David's line. But here is the deal. Only God could do something like that. That's incredible in and of itself. But there's also something else in this genealogy that, that I want to highlight today. And this is where I want to spend my time. A genealogy during the days of Matthew, they were there and written basically as a resume from where you came from. They showed the worth of who you are. And so many times back during that day, if you didn't like where you came from, many people would actually fudge on their genealogies. The same way that some of us fudge today on our resumes. You follow me? And so there had been this fudging process, but Matthew, he didn't fudge any at all. In fact, if you really begin to study the genealogy that Matthew lays out, Matthew gives us a who's who of robbers, thieves, adulterers, fornicators, murderers, liars, cheaters. They're all in the genealogy of Christ. What is it that Matthew is trying to show us here? What does he want us to see here? Because when you stand on the eve of Christmas the way Matthew was doing and looking back at the history of mankind, it looks like who can come out of this? What good can come out of this lineage? What good can happen out of this? You see, they're on the eve of Christmas, the dividing line, if you will, and they look back and say, what good can come out of all of this? Some of you are saying the same thing. What, what good can come out of this year? Because when I stand here on the eve of Christmas and I look back and I see that my life has been one of chaos and one of discontentment and inadequacies, what good can come out of this? Because my marriage has, has been in turmoil. How is God going to bring anything good out of this? You see, Christmas is the dividing line. And if we ever get that up, you let me know when it's ready so that I can try it again. Give me the thumbs up, son. Christmas is that dividing line. And what good can come out of it? Let me show you what happens. Look in verse 17. We're going to see what Matthew was trying to tell us. In verse 17 it says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Hold on a second. This is beautiful. But it's deep. I can only spend a few moments on it because I'm going to come back to it later. But Matthew, in an accounting fashion, he breaks down all of humanity in three sets of 14. There is Abraham to David, David to the exile, and the exile to Jesus. Three sets of 14. Why does he use 14? Let me tell you why, because this is significant. And it's also a lesson in arithmetic. 14 takes two sevens Why would he want us to see the value of the number seven? You see in the biblical language the number seven is The number for completion Look at your neighbor and say completion Matthew's telling us something here without telling us he's expounding through symbolism He's saying to us That there is completion, that the the dividing line of Christ, now that Christ has come, things are going to be different. You see, what was doesn't have to be because now there's something new. Are you grabbing this? You see, your past doesn't have to dictate your future. Where you've been doesn't have to define where you're going. Your brokenness does not have to define your legacies. Your why me scenarios do not have to be the end result. Why? Because Christ is the dividing line. And he divided things away from you. That they may have been that way. But now through the seal of Christ you're made complete. Your marriage may have been that way. But now through the seal of Christ you're made whole. Your finances may have been that way. But now through the seal of Christ you're made whole. Your kids may have been that way. But now they can be complete. I'm preaching better than your response see what I love about this is Matthew is trying to say to us that life may have seemed difficult at times and when you look back on life there has been this history of things that have happened And you don't quite understand him, but he's saying to you that now the history is connected to the future. But yet there is this dividing line called the birth of Jesus Christ that will begin to change your future. He's saying to us that even though hell may have broken out in your life and life has been less than desirable for you. But then came Christ, And when Christ came, came his grace. And then came his, his help. And then came his hope. And then came his restoration. And then came his resurrection. And then came his, his prosperity. And then came his, his direction. And then came his destiny. And then came his abilities flooding into our lives. Why? But then Christ came. He's the dividing line. You see what he's saying, and I had this beautiful diagram that I was going to draw on my iPad. And I'm not getting the thumbs up sign, so I'm not going to draw it. So I want you to envision this with me. There is a dividing line right down the middle of the page. On the left side, it's before Christ. On the right side, it's after Christ. What Matthew was saying is that on the left side of the page before Christ, there was brokenness, there was discontentment, there was unfulfilled dreams, there was problems, there was despair. But on the right side, there was grace, there was help, there was hope, there was salvation, there was resurrection, there was restoration in your marriage, you see. Before Christ, life was one way. But after Christ came, it became complete and whole. And the things that were once broken are now made whole and complete in Him. Why? Because God used the stamp of verse 17. God used the stamp. Ignore this. Y'all don't see this. One of our technicians are trying to help us out. He stamped verse 17 and He said, Emmanuel, God is with us. This fascinates me. In fact, I, again, I forgot you were playing. Y'all just give David a hand. for. I, I want to hang out right here for a moment because there is a dynamic of things that are happening around verse 17 that I, I think you need to be aware of. Because what Matthew is saying to us is this, if you're taking notes... Write this down. Matthew is saying that your security is not in your genealogy. Your security is not in your past. Your security is not in any person, place, or thing. Your security is in Jesus Christ. You see, what you need to understand is up until this time, or at least right now in this specific time when Matthew writes this, Rome, this powerful nation, is controlling all of the known world. That's bringing problems for the people of Israel. And the reason why it's bringing problems is because now they have had this different lifestyle that's being oppressed and pressed upon them to live in a certain way. And and, and they're thinking back to thousands of years before when God showed up to Abraham and He said, Abraham, I'm going to save the world and I'm going to use a Messiah to save the world and and that Messiah, the whole world will fall subject to Him and, and the people of Israel will be saved. And now, all of a sudden, they're thinking back, well, hold on, why hasn't that happened? Here we are, being governed by a ruthless power, a powerful nation. Having to live in certain ways that we don't want to live. What happened to to, to the promise that God gave to us? You see, it's unfulfilled. There's discontentment. It's why me? Why this? Why this way? They didn't fully understand this, but I don't want you to disconnect from this story because you're not being oppressed by a powerful nation called Rome. Because maybe you're not being ruled by a powerful nation called Rome, but you are being ruled by a powerful addiction. Or maybe you're being ruled by a broken relationship that you have with a family member. Maybe it's a, a mother or a father. Or maybe you've got this mountain of debt that is staring you in the face. Or, or maybe there, there is some form of brokenness that only you know about and it seems to rule and dictate your life and you understand the promise of God's peace but yet anxiety and fear is overwhelming you. You understand the promise of God's provision, but yet God hasn't showed up yet. Have you ever been there? Come on, I, I need you to preach back to Him. Have you ever been there? What Rome are you facing? Because that's where the people of Israel are at. They're wondering, has God lost control here? He's, he seems to be out of control. Everything seems to be so much bigger than Him. Why all of these promises, but yet, We seem so unfulfilled. Think about this with me. And and this is a beautiful dynamic. If you know anything about the birth story of Christ. You know over in Luke. That Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem. For taxation purposes. You see Rome had established this taxation. So everyone who was from Bethlehem or whatever their home city was. They had to go back to their home city. It looks as if Mary and Joseph are having to give in to the laws of Rome. But really, the book of Luke tells us that this was all done to fulfill the, prof- the prophecy that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. What's beautiful about that is, is that God caused Rome to have this taxation. Not to create a revenue, but to bring Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem. So what God was doing was fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy you see why me why now why this way you see what god was showing us is that even the most powerful nations he can move around like chess pieces even the most difficult problems in your life he can move around like chess pieces you see why me why this why now some of you are giving in to discouragement because it seems like God is not in control in your life. But let me establish this for you. God can move the Rome of that day. God can also move your Rome. God can fulfill promises 2,000 years ago. And He can fulfill promises today. Why? Because He is our security. He is our God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So don't think that God for a moment is out of control. Because God may just be using this as an opportunity to stretch your faith. I know you don't want to hear this because it's not, well it won't make you all butterfly feeling. God will use difficulties in your life to stretch your faith. Some of you right now, you're thinking, well, if God's promises are true, why does he not operate according to my timeline? Well, that's the problem. (laughs) But can I tell you something, and I want you to hear this, listen up very closely. The measurement of your faith is not measured by the number of victories that you have. The true measurement of faith is how you respond during the difficulties. Hello? Hello? Don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. Let me say that again. We see preachers all the time proclaiming the victories of Christ, and that is faith in action. Yes, it is. But that's not the real true way to measure faith because it's easy to celebrate God in victories. But the true measure of your faith is defined by how you respond to the difficulties in your life. Are you with me? In fact, God will use those difficulties to stretch your faith, and how you respond to them will dictate the outcome. L- let me explain this to you. I, I hope we can do this. I want to show you some pictures. Can-, can we do this? All right. How many of you have an iPhone? You have an iPhone? Okay. The rest of you are not saved, but we'll work on you. iPhone is God's phone. iPhone. Here's the deal. If you've got an iPhone, you know that recently, and this is an illustration I saw before and I thought it would work here, even though it was used for a different purpose. I think you'll get the drift. The iPhone now catalogs, especially if you have the new iOS 7, it catalogs your photos in a different format. now. It will take the photos and catalog them in three categories. Number one, moments. Number two, months. And number three, years. Now, let me show you a picture of a moment really quick. Show the picture. This is one of our production staff's photos. This is a picture of the moment. Turn, turn off. Yeah, you got the lights off. You may not be able to make it out, but we're going to say that the picture to the far right. Well, now, let's just take the picture to the far left. Jordan and Bryant and James and D. Rose. We'll, we'll take that picture, okay? For this particular illustration, that picture is a picture of Rome. All right? That picture is the picture that's in the windshield of your life that is overwhelming you, that is overtaking you. It's the season that you cannot seem to overcome. It is what is defining the moment that you are going through in your life right now. In fact, recently I talked to a friend of mine. You can keep the lights off because I'm going to stay on this. Recently I talked to a friend of mine and he's going through a very difficult situation and I said to him, listen, this situation does not have to define your destiny. This particular situation is small in comparison to the backdrop of eternity. It's just a small piece of the time that you're going to live. That's all it is. It's the moment. It's the Rome, if you will. Now, go back to months, if you will. Go ahead, show me the picture of months. Any day now. There's months. Months. Okay, now if you begin to look for the picture of, of Rome in, in, in the month sequence, it's tougher to see. In fact, I don't see it at all. I'm not sure that it's even there. But if you did look at it, you, you, it would be tougher for you to see. Now go to years for me. Is this years? No, no, this is years. Here's years. Now you can't see it at all. Hold on a second. I want you to hang here with me for a minute. Go back to moments. Go back to moments. There's the moment. Go back to year. You can go back to year. And to year. And to year. All right, you got to be quicker. You got to go back to moments again. You got to hang here with me. We did this in the first service. Uh, uh, Moments. Okay, go to year. We're going to do this again. Moments. Now grab this. Then came Christ. Go to year. Moments. Then came Christ. Go to year. You know where I'm going with this. They can't follow me upstairs, but all of you are following me. Okay, here's the deal. In the moment, all you can see is what is staring you in the face. But when you break it down, this collage of eternity, you can't even see it. Why is that encouraging to you? Because you need to understand and take security that you are going through a difficult season right now, but it is only temporary. And God will use it to bring about the victory in your life. And He will take the brokenness and turn it into this collage of beauty. Why? Because He'll take... What is staring you in the face that seems to be so difficult and he'll break it into something that is beautiful and only God can do that. In fact, what else can we learn from this genealogy? You can turn the lights back on. What else can we learn? We can also learn that God uses the good, the bad, and the ugly to accomplish his purposes. Let me define that. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 1. Pick it up in around verse 3, and we're going to read a few verses again together. I want you to see this, because this is big. It says, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hisron. Hisron, the father of Ram. Go on down. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. And Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Making reference to Bathsheba, by the way. I want you to stop right here for a moment. Matthew uses four different women. First off, understand in a genealogy during that day and age, you wouldn't necessarily use women. What is he trying to teach us here? He's trying to teach us something that is very powerful. And that is this, that that God can use the messed up times, the difficult seasons, the bad spots in your life to bring about the beauty of his plan. Let me explain that for you. Go back to verse uh, 3, I think it is. I'm going to show you who Tamar is for a moment. Tamar in verse 3. Matthew chapter 1 verse 3 says Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar. Let me talk to you about Tamar for a moment. and, And I think this will bring home this whole thought. Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons. In Genesis chapter 38 Tamar is debuted. Genesis 38 though. Let me say this to you. It is a very adult like chapter. You need to read it when you get home. In fact. What happens in this, and I'm going to try to keep it as G-rated as I possibly can, but what you have in this passage of Scripture is Judah who has sons, and his oldest is married to this lady by the name of Tamar. This particular son, though, is wicked, and God kills him. But yet, Tamar doesn't have any kids. During that day and age, if your husband died and you did not have kids, you became the possession of the next brother the next son of Judah who was in line, which would be a son by the name of Onan. Onan really didn't like Tamar. He didn't want to take Tamar on as his wife, but he did so begrudgingly. However, he had to bring kids into the world through Tamar, but he didn't want to do that. In fact, and I'm going to keep this clean and put it the way the Bible puts it, but it says that whenever he and Tamar would get together for conjugal visits that he would spill his seed on the ground. This angered God. In fact, so much so that God killed Onan. Here lies a a huge problem. Now, Judah has another son. His name is Selah. But Judah doesn't want to lose his son because he thinks Tamar is cursed. So he tells Tamar, I want you to go live with your daddy in another land and later on when Selah gets a little older, I'll send him for you and he will father kids and you'll be his wife. So she's obedient and she goes and she lives at home with her father and years pass. Selah never comes. She realizes that Judah is telling a lie so she devises this plan in her head and the plan is I know that Judah has a weakness with prostitutes so I'm going to do something that will not only hurt him but will help me. Let me show you something. You've got to see this. Genesis chapter 38. It'll be on the screens but I'm going to read it from my Bible. Picking up in verse 12. It says, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah. To the men who were shearing his sheep and his friend Hira, the Adalamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. Look what she does in verse 14. She took off her widow's clothes. She covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. And then she sat down at the entrance of Enam, in- in- which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Selah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. Dude's pretty messed up. Goes on to say, and what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. And he said, what pledge should I give you? And she says, your seal and its cord and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and he slept with her and she became pregnant by him. Wow. And after she left, she took off her veil and she put on the widow's clothes again. Skip down to verse 24. After three months later, or about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burn to death. How messed up is that? But look what happened.